Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, body positivity, and health at every size. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in weight-inclusive wellness. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food. Hey there, welcome to episode 106 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Ijoma Aluo, an amazing writer and activist who covers fat acceptance and lots of other social justice issues in her work. Today we talked about body politics and her history with dieting, why she decided to finally accept her body and what that looked like, and also her history of growing up with food insecurity and what that did to her relationship with food. It's a really great conversation. I, I really loved this one. It's one of my recent favorites. So I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. Before I do, I just want to share a couple great resources for improving your relationship with food and also helping some of you improve others' relationships with food. Because I know some of you listening are professionals who work in the field of eating disorders and body image, and maybe you're a dietitian or a therapist or another health professional who wants to do this work. And so I have a great resource for you that I want to recommend, which is the EDRD Pro Symposium. Symposium. You may have heard me talk about this a couple weeks back in episode 97 with Sumner Brooks. We spoke about it. So Sumner put this together. It's an incredible resource for anyone who's working in the field. Really, it's it's mainly targeted towards dietitians, but I think health professionals of all stripes could really benefit from this. It's 15 experts in the field of eating disorders and body image, including yours truly, which I felt very honored to be a part of this group because it's amazing. It's like a who's who of who's been on food psych. There was Marcy Evans, there was Fiona Sutherland, one of the co-authors of Intuitive Eating. So many amazing people in this field talking about all different aspects of treating eating disorders and body image issues in our clients. And so I have signed on to be an affiliate for this program with Sumner because I believe in it so much. And so if you join through my link, you'll be helping support the podcast and also getting this amazing training to deepen your work with clients on eating disorders and disordered eating. So if you head to christyharrison.com slash EDRD, that's christyharrison.com slash EDRD. It's like eating disorder registered dietitian, EDRD. You'll be redirected to the page for EDRD Pro on Sumner's website, where you can find out more about the symposium and sign up there. The second resource I want to share is my free guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. So this is kind of like a bonus podcast episode that I created to help address some of the main questions that come up around people's relationships with food. It's actually based on the survey that some of you guys filled out in the Food Psych Facebook group to tell me what you're interested in learning more about. And I took the results of that survey and used it as a jumping off point to create this guide with kind of like the top seven areas of concern that that people have and like simple actionable tips to help address them. So to get the guide, go to christyharrison.com slash strategies. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. And you'll be redirected to a page where you can put in your email and the guide will be sent to you right away. 
You can also get it on the go if you're listening to this without access to the internet, but you do have text messaging access. You can text the number 44222. That's the phone number to enter in the, the number field. And then text the word food psych, all one word, to that number. That's 44222. Text the word food psych to that number and you'll get the free guide delivered to you that way. Finally, if you like the podcast and you want to help us reach more people who need to hear the Health at Every Size message, please share on iTunes and make sure you're subscribed on iTunes as well. So I know some of you listen on the go or maybe some of you are listening for the first time and this was recommended to you so you're listening from the website, but definitely go into iTunes and be sure to hit subscribe so that you get new episodes delivered every week because that also helps bring us up in the rankings so that other people can find the body positive message as well because every time new people subscribe, it brings us up higher in the iTunes rankings, and a lot of people are finding us through the iTunes rankings. So if you want to share this message with more people, maybe people you've never even met all over the world who need to hear this message, you can subscribe via iTunes and also share via iTunes so that more people in your community will find out about the podcast. So if you want to share, just go to the three little dots at the bottom of your screen. If you're looking at your phone, the podcast app on your phone, it's the three little dots, hit that, and then that'll bring up the option to share the episode. Or if you're listening on your computer, there's a little drop-down menu next to each episode on the right-hand side, and that will also give you the option to share the episode. And thanks so much to everyone who's sharing with friends and family and on your social media because it is helping. It's bringing us up in the rankings, and we're getting lots of new people subscribing. So thank you to everyone who has shared and supported the podcast this way. It really means a lot to me. All right, without any further ado, let's go talk to Ijoma Aluo. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. <laughs> you know, I, I think my, my relationship with food was really desperate growing up. Uh, we grew up really, really poor. And so food insecurity was a real part of my day-to-day -day life. So I always had like this kind of grasping, really desperate relationship with food. You know, we would have times where we'd have absolutely nothing. And then, you know, like the first of the month, we'd go shopping and, you know, we would just try to eat as much as possible because, you know, we would have food. And so so my, my relationship with food was always really, really fraught as a kid. Yeah, it's it. I mean, food insecurity really leaves a lasting impression. It creates a sense of deprivation and scarcity that's very real, like different than a lot of people will say that they've been on diets since they were kids. And that that also creates a sense of sort of desperation and deprivation. But food insecurity is a, a real thing. Yeah, definitely. It, it really shapes your entire relationship with food. Um, well, it's a lot of things, you know, that sort of insecurity kind of bleeds into a lot of aspects of your life. But food ends up being one of the more visible ways in which it does. Yeah. How did that affect your relationship with food? You know, I think it's it really made that whole, I talk about it a lot the same way why a lot of people who grew up poor can't save. Saving is, you know, people always talk about, oh, if you, you know, if you skip that latte, you'd be able to afford this, which is, you know, just complete bullshit. Because the truth is, is when you can't make rent, you can't make rent. And a latte or two isn't going to hurt. And you try and get what you can while you have something. And food is very much the same way. You know, the food isn't going to keep a month. And at the end of the month, you're going to run out of food. And no amount of scrimping or saving is going to change that. And so you get this very much sort of, I have to eat it all now feeling, and I can't let it go. And I have to hide this food and keep it away from other people so they can't have it. And I have to 
the moment I have a little something, I have to go buy food with it. You know, mm-hmm. the moment I feel abundant, I have to buy more food. And it, it's, it's a real, because we, I remember my mom, you know, she would like take us to Costco and be like, eat as many samples as you can because there's no dinner tonight, you know, and we would just go, <laughs> you know, sample cart, sample cart, just trying to get as much as we could in as short a time as we could. And that was kind of the way our relationship with food kind of always was. We would have nothing and we would go eating nothing but the same ramen noodles day in and day out for weeks. And then like my mom would get paid or we'd get a new book of food stamps and we would get like ice cream and cakes and, you know, that's what we could to just have a break from the way you have to eat most of the month. And we would just eat it all, you know, and we would just, we were so deprived that we would just kind of luxuriate in it, even if we couldn't taste it, you know, and we'd feel sick, but you kind of end up with that feeling. It's really hard to break that, to realize you have enough, to realize that food can be more than this hunter gatherer kind of instinct that it can be a really enjoyable thing and, and enjoyable just because it tastes good, not because it's a reminder that in the moment you have enough, you know, I think that's a really different way to enjoy food that like a lot of poor people don't get to have. You enjoy food. You love eating the food you have because it feels like safety and it, it's not necessarily about how the food tastes. And I think that, you know, that's a really different relationship with food that it's really hard to build if you've never had. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting too that you mentioned like buying cakes and candy, you know, sweets and stuff with the money that you got or the food stamps because I think about this sort of misguided public health effort, you know, to like police what people are allowed to buy with food stamps and I think it completely misses that psychological and emotional element of you've been having stuff that's so monotonous and bland and suddenly you have enough to buy something that's exciting like of course you're going to want the exciting stuff of course you're not going to want also i mean sort of nutritionally it's like vegetables aren't going to fill you up right so if you if you have a limited pool of resources and it's like buy this broccoli or this sweet treat or this interesting thing that's also going to be filling yeah right of course it's a no-brainer yeah and i think you know people don't forget that it's not as if the rest of our time we have good options. You know, if we had a food system that really focused on making sure that everyone had access to healthy and good tasting food and autonomy to kind of decide what that looks like for themselves, that's where the behavior would be cut down drastically. But it's when you go, you know, 28 days of the month eating canned green beans and ramen noodles because that meets the minimal dietary requirements that you know the government thinks you should be able to have or it's how you can stretch those few food stamps that they think are enough to feed a family because they have all these charts of like disgusting food that they think you can stretch you know and they have all these uh, recipes yeah you can feed a family for ten dollars and it's all gross subpar food and people want food. They want, you know, they want good food. And I think if we focused more on that, then you wouldn't have this desperate once a month kind of breakdown of like, I can't handle it, but they don't do that. And, you know, you're supposed to suffer and you're supposed to hate everything you put in your mouth when you're poor. And you're supposed to be glad that it just, you know, I'm surprised they're not handing out just pucks of protein to poor people. 
because it really feels the same way. It, you know, you go to the food banks and there's absolutely no care given really at all to what ordinary people want to eat and, and to any sort of autonomy towards what we put in our mouths. So you grab what you can, you know, if you have a moment where you have enough to make a choice, you're going to try and make up for all that lost time. You know, I think we don't understand when you're comfortable, you fit these treats in regularly and then you call it moderation, but it's really a privilege. You know, you fit in it. That's a lot to stand. You know, you fit in that little cupcake here and there or that one piece of candy. And then you feel so proud of yourself that you didn't eat the whole pack. But in the meantime, there are people who go without over and over and over and over and over. And then you wonder why they eat it all when they can, you know. And I wish we, we really changed, you know, I wish we looked at the quality of life for poor people and not just about do they have enough calories that they're not going to die of starvation. Right. Yeah, because there's so much more to nutrition, really, than than just that. It's like, I mean, that's, of course, an important element, but also pleasure and satisfaction and variety. And and also, I mean, I, I remember looking at the, I forget it, what it's called. I think it's called like the thrifty food recipes or the thrifty food, something like that. But it's given out, I think, with SNAP, with food stamps. And it's all these recipes that you're supposed to be able to make to stretch the food, like you said, but it, it's so time consuming. It's like soak these dried beans overnight and cook them for three hours <laughs> on a stuffed up. And it's like, okay, if someone has two jobs that they're juggling and kids or whatever, like, you know, people are busy that that's not in the realm of possibility for a lot of people. And especially if they're poor and struggling to make ends meet, like we're not, you're not going to spend three hours over dinner, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think I still have dried beans in my pantry from like when I was pregnant with my nine-year-old and like for Wick, you could, you get these bag of beans. And I, I still have them. I, I, you don't have time. You no. don't have time to, and especially, you know, poor people, time is a luxury, you know, and you're working, you're raising kids. I was going to school at the time too. And there was no way I was going to cook the beans. They just sat there. They just piled up. They're still there. I'm sure I could cook them one day or there'll be some weird, you know, archaeological remnant <laughs> at my house. But Right. I know I have some dried beans in my pantry too that have not been opened or seen the light of day in years as well. It's like, it's good in a, a pinch, I suppose. But when does anyone have time to do that? Exactly. Yeah. And so how did your relationship with food evolve over time? Like, were you your whole childhood pretty much kind of living that way? Or was there a moment where you had more reliable source of food and did that change things? You know, my, my entire childhood was that way. I mean, we were, we were desperately poor through the entirety of my childhood. I started to really kind of hoard more of my own food when I got older because I started babysitting for money because it was a weird mix of like not only did we not have food but my mom I love her but she is a horrible cook and she's a really bad cook who also worked the swing shift and so you know she worked a really hard labor job and then she would get home at like 11 o'clock at night and then she would try and cook for dinner and like wake us up to eat this really awful thing that she made out of you know whatever horrible canned crap we had in the pantry and I, I couldn't stand it. I mean, like, I love good tasting food. My brother does too. So I started using my babysitting money to buy groceries and I would keep them in a bag. And then my mom was like, woo, I can save some money. And my mom just stopped buying groceries. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, used it on like gas money instead, <laughs> like keeping the lights on. She's still like, oh, those were great times, man, when I didn't have to worry about grocery money anymore. <laughs> okay, mom. 
And so then it was whatever, you know, a 16-year-old or a 14-year-old could keep and eat. And I would hide it in a grocery bag with my name on it so that my brother wouldn't eat it because he wanted whatever grocery store food that teenagers buy too. And so throughout all of my childhood, that was my relationship with food. I had started to realize that I was a chubby kid and it, it did start to bother me probably around, I'd say, like, I mean, there were people telling me I needed to lose weight my whole life, but it wasn't until probably my junior or senior year that it like started to bug me. But I, I had in no way the resources or the will to really do anything about it, change, you know, change how I ate. I had other things to worry about. And so I didn't, I didn't, it was just a thing that sat in the back of my head. I think like it does for many women, that constant, oh, I wish maybe one day. And I just kept on with my life, but my relationship with food didn't change. And I don't think it changed until I would say it probably changed when I, when I did go through this really awful dieting phase, but that was I was 21, I think. So it was probably until I was 21 that my relationship with food was just like that. Mm. And what happened at 21 when you went through the dieting phase? You know, 21, I wrote about it. I, I went through, I had survived a, a sexual assault and it, I was in a bad spot in my life in general. I was, I was newly separated from an abusive marriage. And the thing that I jumped into ended in this assault, along with a whole lot of other, you know, humiliations and and I remember I had all these things on my head. You know, I remember thinking like, I'm black, I'm fat, I'm a single parent, I'm 21, and no one is going to love me. And I didn't think anyone was going to love me, not necessarily because of all of those things. Like, I feel like I was aware enough of the kind of general fuckery of the world to know that that wasn't why. But I knew the why was my brain. Like the why was that I was never going to think I deserved better. And I was going to continuously settle. And, you know, and I think part of it too was just, you know, when you go through something like that, I think it's really hard. You did, you, you try and figure out a way to get through it mentally as unscathed as possible. And I don't think at the time I had the ability, I mean, I was dealing with so much, you know, I was dealing with this divorce. I was so young. I was sick. I'd just gotten a really bad health diagnosis. And and I didn't at the time then also want to say I had been assaulted. Like I didn't want to say, I don't think I could have handled it at the time. And so I think what I did was I refocused, how can I stop myself from being in this situation again? And it was a weird kind of self-blame in a way, but it was the only thing I could think of to do. Like I knew it was wrong. I knew that it was wrong that I thought that I didn't deserve better, but I also knew I didn't have the strength at the time to get right in my head, like as I was, I knew I didn't have it in me. I didn't have it in me to learn to kind of love myself as I was. And so I decided instead I was going to lose weight. And it was like the only thing I could think of to do. And so I kind of like obsessively started dieting. And I did. I lost a lot of weight in a fairly short amount of time. And I was thin for the only time in my life. In many ways, it was a really, really awful experience. The only thing I remember, though, knowing that it was the only time I had learned, though, that I had had an unhealthy relationship with food was even then when I was dieting, I would do these, nothing reinforces that whole deprivation feeling, you know, <laughs> than, than dieting. Right. 
And I remember moving. And what I would do, I'd make these weird deals with myself to eat with the things that, you know, I had missed because it was that same, oh, I'm just going to eat the same tasteless crap day in and day out. It felt very similar, but it was, of course, for a different purpose. So then I, what I would do was, you know, I was doing like, you know, like points and I'd be like, I can eat this many cookies and I won't eat dinner. And when I moved and I still had that very, like, I have to hide this. I have to keep this. I have to, you know, it's all going to disappear. And, but it was the added also, oh, I'm not going to have the points to be able to eat more. So I better eat in the beginning of the week as many cookies as I can because I'm going to run out. You know, it's that very same feeling. And I was moving out of my house and I, I moved, I lifted my bed and there was like probably 30 empty packages of cookies under my bed. And that's when I kind of realized how many, like it wasn't, I wasn't mad I'd eaten that many cookies because I love cookies. Cookies are great. It represented how often I had made that trade of I'm not dinner tonight so I can have these cookies. And I realized like, that's not a way to eat, to hide it like that, to put under my bed, to feel like, to know that I'm depriving myself of nutrition so that I can have these cookies. It, you know, it was like this graveyard <laughs> of like my own like humanity, like sitting there in cookie form under my bed. And I, I remember thinking like, I have to find a way to divorce myself from this feeling that I'm not going to have enough and that I have to eat it all right now and then none later. And that was kind of, for me mentally, it was a bit of a turning point to realize like that regardless of what the scale said. And at that point, you know, the scale was, you know, people were congratulating me left and right. I had a really, really unhealthy relationship with food. Yeah. That's amazing to be able to recognize that in the face of compliments. Cause I think, as I've said many times on the podcast, I think compliments can be so toxic and reinforcing unhealthy relationships with food because you're getting this attention and this praise that everybody wants and that you've been seeking in some way and the promise of weight loss is held out as like this is how you're going to get happiness praise acceptance whatever and then people kind of reinforce that and it's like the myth feels like it's really true yeah i mean for me i think it's funny because it really made me angry it made me super super angry because i went into it knowing it wasn't healthy like i went into it knowing that it was all bullshit but it was the only way i could at that time kind of get through what was happening to me and I knew it was bullshit and so then the compliments just reinforced that and it really made me mad like I remember that feeling like I remember feeling really betrayed by people who I'd known for many years who suddenly thought I was beautiful you know who suddenly thought I had something I, re I remember every compliment like you're desperate you don't want it to go away because you don't want to go back to being invisible you don't want to go back being seen kind of as this, you know, when you're, when you're fat, some people are openly hostile, but the majority of people just, you become a non-entity. You don't exist. You can be funny. Sometimes you can be this, but the truth is, is unless you're actively like doing something spectacular, you just don't exist. And I was so angry to have people who I, you know, had considered me friends for a long time, suddenly looking at me differently, talking to me differently, like, it made me livid. I remember that feeling. I remember just looking at everyone so mad that I would have to have done all of this, that it was all true. You know, I think so, so often people tell you it's not true. People tell you, oh, it doesn't really matter how you look. That's all in your head. People aren't judging you. People aren't looking at you a certain way. And it's, I was so angry to find out that, you know, it was true, that I had to go through all of this crap just to be seen, you know, and nothing else about me had changed. 
And that was, it was really weird. I remember that looking at and like not trusting anyone. And I didn't want to date. I was so mad at like all these dudes, <laughs> like mad. I was so mad. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like, I mean, and it's funny too, because the part of the impulse, it sounds like, was to be able to to date or get attention or be attractive. Like that was part of the the initial impulse, right? Of, of like escaping everything that was that was going wrong in hopes that something could go right, could go better in your life. And then actually these people's reactions was sort of evidence that their values were really skewed. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And it, and it just, you know, I think for me, part of it was more like I had felt like I had been sending out signals that I would settle for anything. Like I had felt like my lack of confidence was telling people I'm someone who will take anything and be glad for it. And so that for me was kind of why I had wanted to do the shift, not necessarily for how people would see me, but more how I would see myself and what I would or wouldn't be willing to settle for. And, you know, and I didn't, I knew that there was a time where I could have those boundaries at myself, but I didn't feel strong enough. And I was really, really afraid. You know, I had grown up, my mom was, was very heavy when I was a kid throughout most of my childhood. And I remember her saying like, well, who else is going to love me? You know? And I didn't, so terrified, like, cause I loved my mom and I always thought she was worthy of so much more. And I was so terrified that I was going to do that to myself. And I really, you know, at that time saw her as doing that to herself. I didn't quite fully see like the society pushing that on her and what that looks like for 50 years. You know, I was 21 at the time and I didn't quite get it, you know? And while I was what most people would consider like chubby, my mom was fat. My mom was fat in the daily humiliations type way where people openly say things to your face and anything, anybody that would come by, she would take in and she was always taken advantage of so badly. And she's such a great person. And I was so afraid that I was going to be that. And so then to see people treat me with more respect and treat me like I deserved more, it made me so mad. Mm-hmm. And like I was doing it because I knew that like even if I knew that what was drawing people was the fact that I had absorbed all of that messaging and the fact that I didn't know how to say no. I had really put that all on myself. And it, for me, it was more about myself and how people treated me. Like it was more, even if I'm alone, I'll be alone. But right now I had, I felt like I had like a target on my back, you know, been through this really abusive marriage and then went through this horror relationship. And I felt like if I had more confidence and this was the only way I could think of to get it, I could take that target off. But at the same time, like to have that reinforced to like be like, oh yeah, no, you have gone through all this hell for a reason because now people are suddenly treating you decent. It really did make me mad. You know, I was, I was aware of the whole time of the fundamental injustice of it all. I was aware of it. I shouldn't have to have done that. And so it made me, I walked around mad for the entire time that I, that I was there. <laughs> Yeah, it is such an injustice. And it it really, it's interesting that losing weight was the only thing you could think to do because that is what's sold to us, you know, in so many ways in diet culture, right? It's like, that's set out as the way to, to get more confidence, to change your life, to take charge. And body acceptance and fat activism isn't really mainstream enough to be seen in that way, right? It's not like those aren't the messages that we get inundated with for decades. Yeah. And especially not, you know, back in like 2001, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't the term that we had. 
So nobody was talking about like loving their curves, you know, the plus size models that you saw that were applauded were size, you know, right. So there was no <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it was completely <laughs> skewed. Yeah. Yeah. Body positivity was not a mainstream concept. But it's interesting that you had the sort of intuition that that was that that was possible, that accepting your body was possible. And it was sort of like, well, I don't have the strength to sort of go into that right now, but that maybe that would be another way other than losing weight. Yeah. I think part of that was just, you know, like looking at growing up with my mom, my mom was beautiful to me growing up. It was funny because she used to always say, you know, are you embarrassed that I am this heavy? And we never were. We never were. It, it never phased us in the slightest. Like my brother and I, we just never noticed. Like we just thought mom was gorgeous. I used to draw pictures of her when I was a kid, you know. And so it never made sense to me. It never made sense to me to see like someone so kind and beautiful be treated so awful. And I remember like wishing she would know, you know, how great she was. And so I always knew it was crap, you know, like I always did because I, I, because I had exhibit A, like someone like who was openly mocked and treated like crap every day of her life. And she was beautiful. So it never, it never sat with me. It never like and anyone, you know, and it was weird because it was just in like, it was strangers that treated my mom this way. And it was like people in romantic relationships who took advantage of her this way. But even my friends saw my mom the same way. My mom's like one of those like super kind hearted personalities where all my friends loved her. She was everyone's favorite mom. You know, people would run away to live with us. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know my mom was that mom that everyone wanted to come to. And so, you know, for me, like, I think just always, be, I was always aware. I remember watching people treat her so bad and just wanting her to see that she was so much better than that. And she couldn't see it because the messaging was so strong. And I couldn't see that messaging because I was a little kid. You know, I couldn't quite see what all that messaging was. It's now as an adult looking back, that I can see how strong that messaging was. But as a kid, I just saw this really, this thing that made no sense. I saw this wonderful, amazing, kind, beautiful person who thought she didn't deserve better. And it made no sense to me. And so I grew up like really strongly feeling that injustice. Mm. Yeah. What did you discover about that as you got older and started to see what those injustices were? As I got older, I think I started to realize just how systemic it all is. We don't have a dialogue to really talk about it. We don't have a dialogue to talk about all of those little hurts and the way in which they add up. And because of that, I think it's really hard to see. But I saw my mom, you know, I could look back and remember all of these things. I remember like her being weighed on the freight scale at the hospital. You know, how, how dehumanizing, how awful to not have a scale for your patients, Seriously. you know? And how, how can you call that care? How can you, you know, like mm -hmm. how, how can you? at um you know to someone and looking back on it you know just it shocks me and to see like the strength that she had to keep going on and still being like an open-hearted person and a kind person amazes me and as I got older I think especially my mom ended up having weight loss surgery and she lost a lot of weight very significant amount and there are some ways and I think that we need to be I'm not going to say that her life didn't change. It changed in, in some ways. And 
it did become easier for her to access a lot of services and move around. But the way in which she looked at her body didn't change. It was never enough. And those scars didn't change. She certainly didn't start asking for more out of her relationships. You know, she'd spent a whole life thinking that she should be glad for what she had. That didn't just disappear. And to watch her, like, she she had been so excited about this surgery. And she had had all these plans. You know, we all do those things where we say, oh, when I lose this much weight, I'm going to buy this outfit. Or I'm going to this stuff. You know, my mom had a whole lifetime of everything, you know, of, of saying that for everything. And so when she had been approved for surgery, oh, she was so excited and talked about it for months. But then she still couldn't, she still didn't do those things because it's not those things. It's the whole society telling you that you're not enough. And society doesn't give you an actual end goal. There was no way she was going to turn into a supermodel. She was in her 50s, you know, right. and she had been carrying this weight for, for years. And she was going to have the body of someone who had lost all of that weight, not the body of someone who had never gained that weight. She was going to have, there was going to be a new focus, a new way of feeling like her body didn't measure up. And so she became just as obsessed with her excess skin, you know, just as worried about as she had been about her weight, if anything, almost more so. Because there's something about having this external appearance and then being afraid that people are going to see when you take your clothes off. There's these other hidden flaws. And I saw that and I just realized, like, it's never over. It never ends. And I just wanted my mom to have peace. I still do. I mean, and she's definitely getting better. But, you know, still, she'll go through a breakup and wonder if it's about her body. She looked her whole life. People have been telling her that. And that's when I realized you're never going to get there because it's externally placed goals. And it's really just a way of kind of controlling us. Exactly. Yeah. It's this ever receding point in the future that you can't attain. Even people who are in a generally thin body type can't attain the supermodel ideal. And people who are, it's like there's all kinds of ways that everybody falls short of this ideal that we're sold. Yeah. So yeah, you know, we take a step closer to it and it's like, well, now this is wrong. This other thing you still have to fix and spend more money and invest more in this industry. I think realizing that and sort of waking up to the ways that we're sold sold on this idea that there's something wrong with us, right? That it will only be fixed by pursuing quote unquote perfection that's actually unattainable. I think once you sort of get that at a systemic level, there's so much power in that because you can choose to step away from it and, you know, distance yourself from it. Yeah, definitely. Is that what happened for you? Did you, after that period of dieting, sort of become politically activated around it? <laughs> no, no, not at all. I just kind of had to live. I mean, first off, I I had probably, I had kept all that weight off for like five years, which is longer than most people do. And I did it obsessively. I remember like this whole, like watching the scale and like to make sure to come back up. And then I, I got pregnant and I had another kid and suddenly <laughs> I had two kids mm. and I was like, there's no way, like, there's no way I, I, I could obsess a single parent with two kids. I could obsess the way I had before. There was no way I could work in runs a week. There was no way I could see kids on the budget and then also find a way to eat all of these combinations of food in a way that was going to help me 
lose weight. And mm-hmm. I had, I felt really, really bad about it for a long time. Like I felt really like, like a failure about it. But at the same time, I was super busy. You know, <laughs> I was really busy. And I hadn't put on all of it back at say half. And so I, you know, I'd felt bad about it, but not super bad. Like I still had felt like still kind of winning this game of whatever it was, but then I was just too busy. I was, you know, I was working, I was trying to build a career, I was trying to build a life. And what ended up happening, I think in all honesty was I started realizing that I was measuring the years in a number on the scale. Like I started noticing things like, I would get on the scale and I wouldn't know what to think of myself in the mirror until I got on the scale. I would look in the mirror and I remember not having an opinion on how I looked and thinking, I need to get on the scale so then I'll know. And then I would get on the scale and if the number was up, I would look in the mirror and I would look back. If the number was down, I would look good. And I remember that feeling of like, I didn't know what I looked like anymore. Like, I think that was the most shocking thing to me. I couldn't trust my own eyes. I would get dressed and I would look in the mirror and I wouldn't know how I look. I couldn't just see myself. It was always this weird calculation of, do I look bigger? Do I look smaller? And I couldn't tell. And I remember looking at myself and just desperately wondering, you know, like, do I look beautiful? And not like not being able to tell, not being able to actually see what I looked like. I couldn't see what I looked like anymore. I was just this calculation. And I would just desperately stare because I knew if something was really broken with that, like if something was really wrong with that fact. And I would just stare and stare and stare. And people would tell me I looked good and I would be like, really? And I wouldn't, I couldn't trust it. So they didn't know, you know, what that number was. And so I threw my scale out because I couldn't do that anymore, you know, have that feeling. And then I had to just kind of try and learn to get used to seeing myself. And just, I would stand in front of the mirror and be like, this is what I look like. And I don't know what that number is. And so I, you know, I don't have a number to tell me how to feel about that. This is just what I look like and try and get used to that. And then as time passed, I got a little more comfortable with that. And I would say it's never been like a concrete victory. It's not a, I was just talking with Jess Baker the other day and I was saying a lot of times it feels almost like, like a, like recovery from substance abuse. You're never completely there. You'll have months, even years where you feel great. And then you'll have days where it all comes back and you're buying all of the crap again and you're feeling awful. And, you know, I would have periods still where my, you know, weight would fluctuate and suddenly I couldn't handle it and I would have, whole months, you know, where I wouldn't want to leave the house, but then you catch yourself and you go back to the work that you've been doing, you know, and you try and remember like the core truths that you know about yourself and you work back towards it again. But, you know, I think for me, it really, I had so much life. I had such a busy, busy, busy life and I was building so much and I still didn't know what to feel about myself without this number. And then I kind of realized like, Am I really going to look at these years as the years that I got fat? Or am I going to look at it like as the years that I built a career and raised my kids and bought a house, you know, and did all these other things? It's treating it like these were the years I got fat. And that was such a, you know, an insult to my work and to my efforts and my accomplishments and to my family and to all the people who would 
who were investing in me as I was. And I realized that was ridiculous. I was missing out on my whole entire life. So it's still a battle, but it's something that I definitely have started lately. I, I try and treat myself like someone who has accomplished great things. And that includes how I treat my body and how I dress my body and how I how I carry myself. It doesn't have to be the great thing I accomplished doesn't have to be a number. And in fact, it's not a number. And it, it probably never will be. The great things I wish that mean, you know, that I get to, I get to buy a fancy dress, you know, and, <laughs> and I get to because I've worked really, really hard and I didn't work hard to be a certain shape. I worked hard to write and to build a life and this body that carries me deserves to be dressed in whatever I want to put it in, you know, and I deserve to feel that way. And so I've been trying to, to own all of my successes and celebrate myself accordingly and not try act like I don't get to celebrate my body at the same time. Even if your body's a bigger size, your body's still the body that's carrying you around. Your body's still a participant in every great thing you do. And I think we forget that. My body, my body helped me write everything I wrote. My body helped me raise my kids. And we act like because our body's a certain size that our body did nothing good for us. But my body gets just should get just as much praise for everything I've done in it. You know, yes. it should get more for that than than the size, and so it deserves a brightly colored outfit if I want a brightly colored mm-hmm. outfit. All of those things because it was there for me, and it's carried me through all of this. And so that's kind of where I'm at right now. Like I'm really in this whole like, no, you know what? Like this body has done amazing stuff and it has been here with me through a lot and it deserves just as much love and praise as any other part of me and it doesn't have to be a certain size it's done enough like Mm -hmm. it's it's done enough it's worked hard enough to get me through life it doesn't need to prove itself any more than that right i love that perspective and i also think like if you were to still be obsessing about food and restricting and counting points and all that stuff that would have taken away from all the other accomplishments right like you wouldn't have had oh, yeah. like it's like when you have a second kid and you have to devote your time there like that's so much more important than you know counting up these stupid points and like of course it's going to take you away from doing that and of course if you were to you know still be devoting your time to that your career wouldn't be where it is today your relationship with your family wouldn't be where it is today like all of these accomplishments that you've had that are so much more valuable and important than the size of your body which literally does not matter yeah <laughs> it would it would take away from that so i think it's really important to to recognize that i think for anyone who's listening and struggling through their relationship with their body too it's like we wouldn't be here without our bodies period right like we don't we couldn't exist as just a floating soul without a body that's not a thing and then also to the extent that you want to have a great life and something that you're happy with creation or family or whatever, whatever you're looking to pursue and accomplish, that's not going to be through changing your body, even though we're always sold the myth that it is. Because so much advertising and media and just social programming has reinforced this concept that, oh, you want to be successful, get thin. You want to be in a relationship, get thin. Here's what all of this happiness looks like. It's a thin, white, able-bodied, young, body that is not attainable by, 
99.9% of the population. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and diets are boring. Like they're so boring. And that's all you, it's all I used to think about. It's all I used, you know, it took up so much time and effort. Yeah. I don't, I don't have the time. I'm so busy doing things that matter. Like I can't. And, you know, and I think it's also just the whole focus on like any part of it's so, it's so, (laughs) it's so incongruent with who I am as a person. Like I have always been someone living in my brain. I have always been someone just in this imaginary thought space my entire life. I have never been able, I am clumsy. I am not coordinated. I walk into walls. (laughs) I don't like walking or running or sports. I don't like being, I don't like any, I don't like dancing. I don't like (laughs) any of these things. I like none of these things. And some people do. And some people like, you know, are like, I have to be in this shape to do these things and fine. That's, but it's, it's so not who I am. And it's so weird to think that like people would still call it health to like dedicate so much of your life to these things. Like I I don't even enjoy, I don't like them. I don't like these things. They're not fun for me. They don't ever become fun for me. Yeah. Being who I am, like, and people always talk about how this is how you can live your real life. But like my real life is like sitting on a couch watching documentaries and writing essays and reading books like that's that's my real personality that's that's kind of who I've always been and to act like there's some other me out there I think there's a lot of this weird like the real you like goes out hiking you know the real stuff does it's that's not the real me and none of it goes with none of it would help me none of it would help me better be who I am. Like none of obsessing about what I eat and running miles and miles. None of that makes me better, a better reader or a better writer or, you know, any of the things that like, I, I want to do that I love. And we have this fantasy. I think there's this weird thought that like true happiness means that people enjoy these activities. And if you don't like these things, it's because there's something wrong with you. You know, there's all these like movies that show the person who like they're miserable, but then they learn that they really love jogging and i'm not even saying there's anything jogging but i'm saying that like you know this idea that this whole life that people assume goes with fitness and and we don't act like it is because in this in these stories right it's not someone who finds out they love jogging and then they stay fat which happens Mm. to plenty of people plenty of fat people who love to run they stay fat you know and they're happy because they're doing the thing they love but in these stories it's always the true you goes hiking in the mountains and you just don't know it yet and you're not living your real life and I'm like, no, man, my real life is lived on the couch. And I'm totally happy with that. Like, I love it. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's so weird to think I'd spent so many years so far away from who I am. I feel like I have more to contribute to the world in what I've always loved, you know, which is words and thoughts and things like that. But I spent a good, you know, five years trying to like squeeze in as much running time and food planning time as possible. And none of that made me a better writer you know and if i were to start doing that now i would have to like cut out essays i would have to cut out work that i love in order to be able to do it and i think people don't i think we forget that like people act like it's going to make you happier and i I do think that there are you know there are emotional benefits to like movement and Mm -hmm. things like that but i think a, a lot of the ways in which it's prescribed are really unhealthy and i think that there's nothing that's going to be more empowering than being given the ability to find out who you really are and what you actually like 
and not to be told that it has to look a certain way. And for some of us, it's going to be like eating a hell of a lot of cake and reading books. And if that's who, that's what you love, that's what you love, you know? Right. I don't think there's with that. And health is holistic, right? It's the whole person. It's not just about your physical health. Emotional health and well-being is such a huge component of people's health and ability to contribute to the world, to feel like you're needed and that your job is important or that you have a family or relationships that are important to you. All of these things are aspects of health, actually. And, you know, as someone else said on this podcast before, it was like what gets termed holistic health in our society actually is a complete misnomer because it's not holistic at all. It's just about the physical. It's like, oh, drink these green juices and do a detox and like, and what? No. On what planet is that holistic? You know, that's A, not healthy, like not health promoting and B, not at all encompassing the whole person because it's actually making you miserable to do that stuff, right? Like most of most people who go down that road, that's not who they really are. That's not who they want to be. And maybe there are shades of some people like movement more than others. Some people like certain kinds of food more than others. But I don't think anybody who they want to be is like just about green juice all the time. Yeah, I don't I don't think I can't think of any scenario where obsessing. I mean, even professional athletes, I know. I know some professional athletes who they obsess about things about their body, but they obsess about what their body can do as part of their job. I can't think of any scenario with which obsessing about the size of your body is healthy. And that obsession can take multiple ways. It can be obsessing about how much you hate it, but it can also be trying to force yourself into loving it, forcing yourself into thinking about it all the time. You know, all of this stuff, any sort of obsession like that, how is it helpful? Like, in what way are you going to get to a point where how you feel about your body in one way or the other is more important than how you feel about the things in the world that actually matter? I think it's really important that we see ourselves from shame and from stigma, but I also don't think we should replace it with any other body obsession. You know, I think that the ultimate goal is to be able to occasionally feel good about your body, but for the most part, to just not be haunted by it and to not you know, <laughs> to see, to do other things. And I think like uh, when we talk about holistic health and even when we talk about body positivity, I think a lot of times we talk about it in a way that wants to replace one obsession with another. And for me, like my end goal is to kind of walk around the world the same way I feel when I'm like sitting and writing where I'm slouching. Like right now I have the worst posture in the world, (laughs) but I don't care. Like no one can see me. I'm slouching. My hair's still wet. I look ridiculous and I'm perfectly comfortable. And like my goal is to be able to go through life like that. That to me is healthy because then I can do so many other things. And I think like a lot of times when we talk about our relationship, people, we still, we still want to let that obsession go. That, that end goal still ends up with us having to feel some sort of way about our bodies and having to like have, you know, have to be like, yay, my body 24 seven. And no, nah, you know, like it's part of you and you can congratulate it for helping you like get shit done. But like my ultimate goal is to treat my body to see my body the way I see kind of every other aspect of like my being and to not have it be more important to have it be in my vehicle 
that gets me around and should be appreciated for that. But for the most part, just to focus on the stuff that actually matters. And I think like a lot of the way we talk about holistic health and the way we talk about body positivity is a way to also just keep us obsessed with instead of are we hating our bodies, it's are we loving our bodies enough? Are we unabashedly proud of our bodies enough? Are we, you know, and, and it becomes another obsession. And I think like there are times where you're going to, you're going to want to celebrate your body and, and that's a great feeling. But I think that there should be more time to not think anything about your body and to just not even care. You know, I want to walk around like my kids with like, you know, their pants on backwards. They don't even notice. And I want that sort of relationship where I'm like, what? Oh, I, yeah, you know, that would be great. Yeah. I think that's such a great point because that is pretty much how we're born being in our bodies, right? Like we can from the time we're toddlers, like we can run around and do things with our bodies and sort of delight sometimes and what our bodies can do. But more importantly, like we're learning and experiencing the world and growing and our bodies are not of concern. They're not something we're conscious of or feeling like we need to change in any way. Like it's just, it's kind of, I mean, with intuitive eating, because I'm an intuitive eating coach, I talk about how that's sort of the first primary way that we learned how to eat is intuitively, you know, learning to give signals and cry when we're hungry and eat until we're satisfied and full and seek out tastes and flavors that are nice and pleasing to us and that we can all get back there with some some effort and maybe some retraining so that food just becomes like another part of our life that we don't have to give too much focus to. And I think that the same is really true with bodies. Like it can really become this childlike sort of relationship with your body where it's it's not really a thing. It's not something you obsess over. It's something that helps you get things done that's occasionally pleasurable to be in, right? And you know, there are ways that as adults, of course, we can experience pleasure in our bodies like sexually and whatever that are another layer of like pleasure from being in our body. But ultimately, that's not where the magic of life is. It's not about just looking in the mirror all day and being like, "Ooh, I love myself. My curves are so beautiful." Like no, step away from the mirror, go live your life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I think like we we forget that, you know, and I look at my kids and I think like about a lot of parents have these moments, you know, I love my kids' bodies, but I love them in such a different way from the way in which we're told to love our bodies. You know, I love these bodies because it, it, they are the reminders that are there and they could be in any shape and I would just adore them, you know, and you look at it. You look at your children and you see like these, you know, you're like, oh, that's a new freckle. That's weird. You know, mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, look at that, you know, and you love them and you watch them grow and change. And you're just fascinated because it's the vehicle that keeps these like magical, wonderful beings in your life. And you love it. Most parents, not all parents, because I think a lot of kids, of course, suffer from a lot of pain and parents not seeing this way. But I think there is a time in almost every parent's life and how long that they hold on to that for their children. Some do forever. Some don't. You look at them. I look at my kids and the love I have for their bodies is completely disconnected from the shape of their bodies. But I, I appreciate, you know, I appreciate every bit of them, but it's not in a weird obsessive is it this shape does it have this tone does it have this muscle it is these are the vessels that these amazing people are here with you know and 
it's a it's the symbol of love that they exist and the bodies are a physical proof that they exist like that's it for me for them you know and they're just the most beautiful things and as they get older and, and they start to notice like this weird messaging it becomes kind of heartbreaking to see like how society the world starts putting all these other conditions on these bodies and you know for the most part they're walking around exploring the world and you love them and you look at them and you love watching what they do and then suddenly they start wondering worrying you know about what their bodies look like and it's it's a real loss it's a real heartbreaking loss because they don't stop being who they are you don't outgrow being worthy of that kind of basic beautiful existence you know like it's not something that should expire and for some reason, we act like it does. We act like you can age out of your body just being a magical thing because it exists. And it's, it's so, it makes no sense, you know, <laughs> because nothing fundamentally about us changes that makes the shape of our bodies so much more important than it was when we were little. Our bodies were tools and we explored the world and they were beautiful at times and they didn't exist at times. And they were weird, you know, we would notice all these different things about ourselves. And why we put an age limit on that is beyond me. Why we stop, why we think, oh, you're too old for that. Now your body is something else. It doesn't serve us in any way. It doesn't help us in any way. It's just a huge loss. And I wish I, wish I could look at myself all the time the way I look at my kids. I wish I could have that kind of freedom because I don't look at them and ever worry you worry about them being getting sick. You worry about them getting hurt. But I don't worry about the shape of my children's bodies. I don't worry. I don't wonder. I wonder what they weigh today. Like, I've never thought that's never <laughs> been a question. And even like my nine-year-old, it's funny because he'll get on the scale, but he does it with that kid-like hilarity of like, how much did I grow? You know, it's such a different relationship with all of that, you know. And I don't know why. You know, I, I, if I could make it so that they always saw themselves that way, the way that I see them, it would be amazing. But if I could make it so that I saw myself that way, even half the time, life would be so much better. And I don't know why we, we constantly think that there's a time limit on that, you know? Yeah, I think that's such a great aspiration to have is to get back to that, to being able to see ourselves that way. And I think it's so tough because of diet culture's messages all around us all the time, which I wonder, is that is that part of what you think made your kids start to see themselves differently? Like the self-consciousness creeping in, was that partly diet culture or like beauty standards that they were exposed to or experiencing in a new way? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think now, like, you know, my high schooler, he it slowly creeps in here and there. And, you know, it's funny because I watch him and he does that thing that a lot of, you know, like cis boys do that out and up growth pattern. Mm, yeah. I've like, watched since he was like two, you know, <laughs> but it's hilarious to watch for me. Like I watch it and I'm like, Oh, look, you know, he does this out, up, out, up. And so I can always tell when he's getting ready to grow like three inches mm -hmm. because suddenly <laughs> he's eating everything in the house, you know, and like storing up and then he, suddenly things don't fit width wise and then suddenly everything's too short you know and he does this over and over and over again but even if it wasn't even if he was just gaining weight because he's gaining weight like you just look at your kids and like oh but he's starting to see it differently like it never bothered him before it was never a thing he even thought of before and i've always tried really hard even when i was obsessed with my weight 
to never talk about it, like to never make it a thing and be like, mom's on a diet. You know, I never said that. I never wanted them to hear that. And I never wanted to hear them, you know, I never wanted to brag around them and be like, oh, I lost this, you know, this much weight or anything like that. I never wanted them to like have that sort of obsession. But I think for him, you know, I think honestly, some of it started with doctors. I tell doctors, doctors, it makes me so mad. You know, you take your kid into a checkup, they go in once a year. And these doctors give these lectures as if they know anything about your kid. They don't ask parents, you know, they don't ask. And it makes me super mad, you know, and like my son went in like last one and I was like, well, I'm a little concerned your weight's gone up, you know, and I'm like, excuse me, like, first off, this is still a minor. You should be talking to me before you say anything to my kid, because I could have told you straight out what is or isn't going on with my kid or whether or not I'm at all comfortable with you having this conversation with my kid, you know, but that sort of authority to have somebody treat it like this concern and they don't know, they don't know they're looking at a chart and that's it. And to start and say, you're concerned and then say, are you active? What do you eat? Like, you know what? How about you ask that first? Right. Start like doing that. And I really do think like that was part of it. Like that started kind of putting it in his head that it was different than the healthy fluctuations that I had always said it was, you know, this was no figure. And so, you know, you see, and I think just the other day he had said to me, look, mom, I'm, I'm getting skinny again. And he was like relieved. And I was really sad because I didn't know it was something that had really been weighing on him at all. Because for me, I was just like, oh, you know, there's another fluctuation with my kid. And I didn't realize that it started to shift because he had never cared before. Like before he had not cared. He thought it was, you know, hilarious. He still looked at his body with that kind of general curiosity of like, oh, look, I've got this little role here. That's weird. And, and, and I had kind of obsession. But I think the dialogue around it has changed. And I think a lot of it started too with, with like doctors and schools talking about it as if this means this lifetime of something, you know, and as if this is the beginning of these quote unquote serious problems. And he started looking at it differently. But this is the first time he's gone through one of these growth spurts where he's voiced any concern. And it, and it really did make me sad because we've met, we've made it to 15 without it ever being an issue, you know, and I was really glad to see that. And so now it's like, oh, I need to double down on really talking about the fundamentals of, it's hard when they're little, it's hard to talk about the fundamentals of what diet culture is and what it does. But I think now's the time for me to start really talking to him about it and like how it's harmful and how insidious it is and kind of how it's worked its way into, you know, the way he sees himself sometimes or might see himself sometimes. Because like, yeah, it was, it was really kind of heartbreaking to hear him say that because he's never ever said anything like that before. Oh, so sad. And, and the fact that it's doctors too, and that schools are now policing children's body mass and, and that body mass index has no bearing on health. And yet this is something that the medical industry has jumped on and latched onto as something that needs to be brought up in every meeting with a patient. It's like, the sort of standard of practice, which is now completely outdated, but it's it's only, I feel like it's just getting worse because this obsession with BMI has now trickled out to really all forms of medical care as well as schools and the, like the childhood obesity, quote unquote, initiatives just keep growing. There's, there's more and more of them. And so 
yeah, I think being able to help kids recognize that that's diet culture too, even if it's coming from an authority figure like a doctor, that's a, I mean, that's just requires a lot of critical thinking, certainly. So at 15, he's probably finally able to think about that. But like a younger kid who got that message, that's really hard to, to push back against that if they don't have the capacity to think critically like that. Yeah. And it's the most ridiculous thing because it's so insulting to assume that anyone could live this world and not know what obesity is right (laughs) what like how calories work you know and and the the talk the doctor says to you is going to contribute anything but shame as far as that goes you know and it's so annoying like to have even a a doctor tell my 15 year old oh i'm concerned you know what like he knows all of these things he's heard these things right. we don't live in a bubble we have the internet we have all <laughs> pop culture telling us this is how you are supposed to have this body this is how calories work this is how diets work like right. they know this all you're doing is just adding more like abuse on top of it and it, and it is in no way truly connected to health and that has been for me as someone who has suffered from chronic illness most of my life that is in no way connected to my weight doctors have always been far more concerned about my weight than anything else and my weight has not caused me a single health problem and even if it had i'm still an adult like with you know the ability to like make choices for myself and you know if i go to the doctor and i say and it's weird i mean i i've literally spent most of my adult life battling you know truly deadly chronic disease that is in no way weight connected and i can count on one hand the amount of times my doctors tried to talk to me about that but i do know that when i was pregnant with my son i had to be tested three times for gestational diabetes even though there was no chance i was going to have it because i run a very low blood sugar to the point where i pass out frequently like i knew it was and, and every time they would test my fasting glucose to feel like it's 60. And I'm like, how many times do we have to go through this? Right. And, you know, and so the whole time I'm like literally battling this deadly disease. But the concern is whether or not I'm, you know, because I'm fat, I'm going to come up with gestational diabetes, even to the point where I remember giving birth to my son. And I literally had just given birth. And the anesthesiologist is talking or I think it was the nurse is talking to the doctor and says, what's her weight? And then the doctor tells her and she goes, Oh, gestational diabetes. And No, you would have thought so. Right. God. I just had a baby. (laughs) Like I just, you like, they were still like, you know, like cleaning the baby off from all the gross stuff that gets, Baby, I'm like, can can this moment not be about how obsessed you are with these health problems that you were sure I was going to have? They didn't right. have, and uh, you know, can we focus on on the on the issue at hand, which is this baby? <laughs> just that, um, you know? and it's you know, it's so frustrating because, like, I mean, they were insistent, insistent. This was what this was going to happen, and and any anybody with any sort of look at my history would know differently. Anyone who knew how my blood sugar was, I mean, because I've literally been to the doctor with low blood sugar. I've literally had to go in and be like, hey, I keep passing out, you know, (laughs) like help me. And and yet they couldn't stop testing me. I don't know how many times 
they've tested my blood sugar. I go in and they constantly test it. They don't even ask me anymore. Like, it's not going to be a problem. And for some people it may be, but you still, you still should ask. Like, you should yeah. still and like, look at the person's chart too. I mean, I'm sure they have your, your records. Everybody's got electronic medical records now. It's just like, give it a glance before you do the test, you know? Exactly. Oh. It's such a whole fat equals this. And we're going to obsess about this, that it becomes the thing that doctors see more than anything else. And it's so frustrating because you miss so much, so many other things. There are so many more important questions. I would rather doctors be asking my kids. Absolutely. And things that they can ask that I can't ask, that I wouldn't know to ask. I know how to look at weight. I know how to look at nutrition. I don't know warning signs for disease or for mental health issues or all these other things that, you know, pediatricians and family doctors are trained to be able to spot. That's that's where I need them focusing. I need them focusing where they can actually do some good instead of just adding more to the noise about body size. Yeah. And that's such a great point that like literally no one in our society, unless they live under a rock, has never heard about the quote unquote obesity epidemic and the dangers of being fat, supposedly, and all this stuff, right? And and diet culture has pervaded every single corner of our of Western society. So yeah, it's it's sort of ludicrous to think that they would spend all this time like educating you on, well, do you know that XYZ diet culture thing? And it's like, of course, of course I know that. Like I live in the world. Med <laughs> school for eight years just to be able to say that over and over right. and over again. <laughs> you right. know, please, please contribute something to my general health and well-being outside of additional shame. I would love that because I know they have knowledge. They have plenty of knowledge. There's plenty of stuff they could be using that, you know, 15 minutes that modern doctors are allotted per patient for other things. Totally. And like most doctors are not trained in nutrition or weight science in school. They get maybe one semester of that, you know, but that's not even their expertise. So it's kind of laughable that that's become like the main focus of medical visits. It's not even using their expertise. Yeah. Definitely. And it's and it's using an area of, of like expertise that really belongs elsewhere, you know, like to dietitians or people who understand weight science and health at every size. And I, like, yeah, it just blows my mind. Oh, oh, my gosh. Well, it's so great talking with you. I could talk with you forever, but I want to be mindful of your time. So tell us where people can find you online and read some of your writing. Chances are everything I write, I will post on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is just Ijoma Oluo. And then also I'm the editor at large at The Establishment, and that's theestablishment.co. And there's just a lot of really great, thoughtful, intersectionally feminist work there by a lot of different writers. So it's always a great spot to go. And it's very, you know, I would say extraordinarily rare that anything harmful as far as bodies is ever going to pop up and and bite you there, which is hard to say, you know, when mm-hmm. you're going and looking for, you know, a place to read because that stuff manages to work its way into a lot of essays. So that's a great spot if you want to have, you know, critical thinking about a lot of issues. And then you also don't want a bunch of weird fat shaming stuff to crop up in the middle of it. I love it. Yeah. So much great stuff about intersectional feminism and race and privilege. Like I love, I love your site. I love what you're doing. So Great work. And I'm going to put links to that in the show notes as well so people can find it. So thank you so much, Ijoma. It's great talking with you. It was great talking with you too. 
So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guests for being here and to you guys for listening. And we'll be back again next week with another brand new episode. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch. And the best way to do that is via email. So you can go to christyharrison.com slash email to sign up for my VIP list. I'll send you info about new episodes of the podcast as they drop, as well as exclusive sneak previews of new episodes, giveaways and other special deals on the products and services I offer, special tips on how to make peace with food and learn to trust your body, and a whole lot more. Sign up at christyharrison.com slash email. You can also subscribe via iTunes and leave us a nice rating and review, which is a great way to get the word out about the podcast and help other people find these important messages. Just go to iTunes from your computer or your podcast app, type in Food Psych to the search bar, click on the result that comes up under podcasts, and then click on ratings and reviews, and you can leave a rating and review right there. And I really appreciate all the five-star reviews and wonderful ratings that we've gotten because it's helped us climb really high right now in the rankings. And that's really cool because we're competing against some of the weight management and body shaming types of messages that I'm trying to fight with this podcast. So we've really started to beat out a lot of the diety voices, and I'd love to continue climbing higher in the rankings to get this message out even further. So please leave us a nice rating and review. It's so very much appreciated. And thanks to everyone who's left reviews so far. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. 